Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature psychokinetic toys, lung flutes, and how to grow a new leg. But first up, here's the news with Aaron Cook. In tonight's news... How to grow a new leg, life outside the zone, an eight-legged handyman, and do you do it fast or slow? What's the best approach for band-aid removal? I'm Aaron Cook, and this is Diffusion News. First up tonight, scientists at the School of Science at Indiana University have investigated the proteins in the wounds of axolotls with amputated limbs to learn more about how the animals regenerate those limbs. Axolotls regenerate limbs by first forming a blastema, which is basically a collection of stem cells under the epidermis of the wound. The scientists found higher numbers of proteins that help avoid cell death and proteins involved in the differentiation of cells. Dr David L. Stokem said the findings point to several areas that need to be studied closely to learn the mechanics of limb generation. Elsewhere in the solar system, Francis Nimmo, Professor of Earth and Planetary Science at the University of California, says that evidence from recent NASA missions points to the possibility of life on the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. Recent proof of ample supplies of liquid water and the discovery of geysers erupting on Saturn's moon Enceladus have led Nimmo to speculate that all of the chemical building blocks of life could be present. Meanwhile, back on Earth... Scientists at Melbourne Museum have discovered a species of octopus in Indonesia that builds a shelter out of coconut shells. The octopi have been observed carrying two coconut shell halves around before assembling them into a ball and hiding inside when threatened. It is thought to be the first recorded case of tool use in an invertebrate animal. Dr Mark Newman says the important thing is the planned future for the coconut shells. It comes at a cost carrying these shells in an awkward way, he said. It's a fantastic example of complex behaviours in what we consider the lower life forms. And finally, a study at Queensland's James Cook University claims to have solved the mystery of whether you should remove a band-aid quickly or slowly to minimise pain. 65 medical students ranked their pain reaction to removing a band-aid, and the slow approach was perceived to be more painful. Dr. Carlo Kane said the research showed the perception of pain to be more a psychological issue than a physical one. If you had a preconception that slow was going to be more painful, then in fact it was, he said. I'm Aaron Cook, and that was Diffusion News. Thank you. 
Thank you, Aaron. And I have in the studio with me Pahir Cooper. I saw that coconut octopus video on the BBC website. It wasn't just that it was clever enough to find these empty coconut shells buried in the seafloor and excavate them and carry them around and work out how to use them, but it paired them up so that it was hiding inside two half shells. And not the only use of tools by animals that we've found recently. Yeah, more and more of these examples keep coming up of, of animals planning for the future. Mm. And it's, I think it's really challenging our ideas of, of intelligence and animals and, and the, the idea that uh, even perhaps humans are somehow so far superior to the rest of the animal kingdom that, n- that no one else could ever hope to, uh, to catch up with us. You know, you've, you've seen uh, self-awareness in dolphins, you've seen, uh, you've seen primates using, using basic tools, and it's also amazing that it took these researchers over 400 hours, I believe, of, of observation to actually learn this. So the, the possibilities for, for what animals are getting up to behind our backs are just enormous. Absolutely. I'd read a book called The Octopus and the Orangutan. He wrote a lot about all these different examples of animal intelligence. And he talked about octopus that could pretty much escape from their tanks, which looks like it shouldn't be possible. But then octopus, octopi, don't have any skeletons. So they can squeeze through really narrow little tubes. And where you think they might not get out and get into another tank, they can. They found that they seem to be... Well, reacting to different researchers that walked past their tanks, the ones who fed them or the ones they didn't like, they seemed to have an opinion. And they eventually also had problems at one of the, where was it? I think it was in Wales, there was an aquarium where the lights, they had problems, electrical problems, so they couldn't work out why the lights kept burning out. And so a night watchman stayed overnight, and what he found was that the octopus was squirting the lights out, the lights on all night. Another another one I've heard about is uh, is, is is some sort of primate. Uh, I think it might have been a baboon, but uh, I could be wrong. Uh, at a zoo in, in the states, and it was it was stockpiling rocks. So it was uh, it was it had learned that rocks were valuable, and it would literally save them up to a point where it was a good idea to start throwing them at zoogoers. Oh, I've um, heard about this one. I thought it was a chimp, but again, I'm not sure either. Could be a chimp. And but yes. Yeah, and just the fact that, it, that he was showing this foresight to uh, not just use what was at hand, but to, uh, to stockpile these rocks to a time when he would have a later use for them. When he was going to be annoyed. <laughs> that's right, that's right. What do you think? Oh, I've heard that um, monkeys can also cooperate. So I, I saw a study where they had one monkey in one glass container and on the other side of the glass wall was another monkey, and the monkey on one side had a shaped block, and the monkey on the other side had the container, which the shaped block would fit into, and the walnuts. And monkey number one had to give it to monkey number two so that he could put the block into the container, open it, and then you think maybe monkey number two would take all the walnuts because he doesn't have to give it to monkey number one. He's separated by a glass wall, but he actually shared the walnuts. So uh, monkeys can also cooperate, which is quite advanced. It is very advanced because on the one hand, they have to work out what each other want and communicate that. And then afterwards, they have to realise that sharing will mean that you've got credit in the future for someone to help you again. And the Band-Aids interested me because when I read that story, I thought, well, hold on, two things. One is, of course, there's a skill in Band-Aid removal like any sort of nurse 
type procedure and some people are better at doing it painlessly than others. And then if you're a guy, there's all the hair. So <laughs> if you do it fast and you're a guy, it's going to hurt more if there's hair involved. And I think that did come into the study a little bit. So I'm, maybe for children, fast is, is better. But maybe if you're, a, if you're a hairy guy, slower <laughs> is less painful. It's a, it's a similar situation to uh, whether you jump into the pool in, in one go on a hot summer's day or whether you inch your way in. Uh, and, again, I think it's different for uh, guys and gals, but um, I'm definitely... I'm an incher. I'm, I'm, definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely in the jump in, in one go camp. There you go. <laughs> oh, I think slowly but surely. <laughs> the less shocks to the system, the better. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Next, we have Bahia Cooper, graduate of ANU Science Communication, with her three favourite inventions of 2009. I'm Bahia Cooper, and I do have a few favourite inventions from this year. There was a lot of inspiring and clever innovations, but I've picked my top three, so in no particular order. The first field is medical science, and the winner is the lung flute. It was created by audio engineers who were joking around about low vibrations being able to mess with bodily functions. Some people may have heard of the brown note, a particular frequency that, when vibrated, will loosen the bowels. Now, this is yet to be proven, but it had got these audio engineers thinking. What else could possibly be moved in the human body by low vibrations? This is how the lung flute was born. It's a plastic instrument that's less than 30 centimetres long that the user blows into. Inside is a thick piece of plastic that starts vibrating. The vibration is about 15 hertz, which is the same as the cilia in your lungs. So people with lung congestion who usually have to take a saline solution to clear their lungs of mucus can blow into the lung flute, setting the cilia vibrating. This will move the mucus naturally, making it thinner and easily to be expelled by coughing. Now the second field I've chosen was environmental science and the prize for this one goes to two engineering students who have made mushroom insulation and packaging. It's called Green Chalate and is completely biodegradable and replaces expensive and environmentally noxious styrofoam and plastic. Always a good thing. So the key ingredient in this Green Chalate is the vegetable roots of mushrooms, called mycelia. They grow these roots in moulds filled with agricultural byproducts like buckwheat seed husks instead of soil. The result is a dense material that can be dried into all shapes and sizes. So mushroom packaging can grow at room temperature and in the dark, and when you finish with it, you can return it to the earth as compost. Simply ingenious. So my last award this year is for a little bit of fun. It goes to a new toy produced by Mattel called the Mindflex. You open the box and inside is a small obstacle course, a ball and a headset. The headset measures your electromagnetic brainwaves, the same as an EEG machine. So you use this headset to power a fan that moves a ball around the obstacle course. You control up and down by how hard you concentrate and sensors on the headset sends radio waves to the little obstacle course and moves the ball. So relax and the ball will fall 
concentrate and the ball will rise. It's a little bit Star Wars, a little bit Yoda, and a whole lot of fun. I hope that Santa's going to bring me one this year. Thank you for listening. So, here, that was fascinating. So, I'm interested in the lung flute. I'm wondering whether you could make music with a lung flute and you could record it and maybe you wouldn't even have to play. You would just listen to the music and well, it would vibrate your lungs. And You could just feel the music instead of listening. Well, humans can hear from 20 vibrations a second, so we wouldn't be able to hear as low as the 15 vibrations that move the cilia. But, yes, I guess you could feel the music. Maybe they could do another one, a nose flute for people with sinus congestion. <laughs> it could be the new way of the future, everything. One little flute at a time. And I'm especially interested in the mind flex. Now, I've played with some simpler versions of these sort of toys before. Originally, I played with a biofeedback game called Chasing the Wild Divine. And what this was, this didn't have any little fans or, or little balls. Instead, it had a little sensor that went on your finger that measured your galvanic skin response, which is basically how sweaty your skin is and therefore how conductive it is, and also my pulse. So it does those, goes to the screen, and you're able to control things on the screen in the game by how relaxed you were. It's going after relaxation response rather than trying to see how afraid or tense you were. So the more relaxed you were, the more you could move things on the screen and stack up little balls and solve mazes and do all sorts of things in this complex game. The next level was something similar to what you're talking about. It was Uncle Milty's Star Wars Force Trainer. And there's all this trademark Star Wars stuff around it about Jedi training and it sort of gives you Yoda voices giving you instructions on your Jedi training and different Jedi levels. And basically, instead of going through hoops and doing all the really interesting stuff that the Mindflex does, it just goes up and down goes up and down in a tube that has different levels graded on the side so you're supposed to get it to you know sort of go up to the first level and control it to the next and so forth but once you've done that there's nowhere else to go really and it didn't seem that it was really going for the EEG it definitely wasn't going for relaxation response like the first one it seemed to be the more you strained like you know if you sort of went red in the face and sort of balled your fists and sort of really made a show you'd get it to move but if you just concentrated or visualised or do any of the other tricks that did work on the Chasing the Wild Divine game, did not work for the Force Trainer. It would not go up and down just because you imagined it to go up and down. It didn't work like any sort of natural... For me, it wasn't very intuitive. It just seemed to be there. The more you strained, the more it worked. So on how tense your muscles were? Maybe. Maybe. I'm just not sure, but it could be just tense tension of your muscles or it could be the instructions, the mind state you have to be in, the EEG of tensing your muscles so i don't know i think you also did have to have a little skin sensor that could also get your galvanic skin response so maybe it's not really reading your mind but maybe it is it'd be interesting to have a go of one well there's another one the really expensive end the 300 dollars end of the market is a motive and a motive have a device that i've seen i haven't played with but i've seen demonstrated and it looks like it, it's been on the new inventors it genuinely reads the eeg brainwaves and it's a lot more complex. But who knows, maybe these toys are doing something. I mean, certainly if they can do EEG, then I want to take one apart and use it for something else. I think it'd be great to, pl- to hack for people who want to make their own little gadgets. I'd like to, to be involved with the, the Wii and, and get my games and just play them with a headset. I think that's the next level of gaming. 
it's got to be, doesn't it? Sounds like a lot of fun. I've, I've seen um, similar things uh, research-based for uh, paraplegics or, or tetraplegic, quadriplegics, where they are, um, you know, they're literally thinking about what direction an arrow should move on a computer screen and, and whatnot. And so rather than just a binary up or down, um, you know, they are building up to literally, you know, four directions of, of moving a, a ball on a screen. And, you know, eventually if you can get to a point where you can think of a letter, you're going to be able to transcribe, uh, transcribe, you know, written correspondence just by thinking of, of, of words and whatnot. The possibilities for, for, for that sort of side of the market as well are just astounding once you start to think about it. Well, funny you should say that. There was a story just last week of exactly that, where someone who was a paraplegic was able to spell out letters by thinking about them. The only problem was that was with an implanted electrode, so that's a bit invasive for most people. If we could get something like this headsets, so I, whether it's the really cheap end of your less than $100 or whether it's the $300 end, that you don't need to have your scalp shaved, you don't need gel, you just put it on your head uh, and you could still get the letters and do something. That would be, I think, ideal because definitely the money will come into the research from the gaming industry, but ultimately it will help disabled people and perhaps it can get rid of the mouse and the joystick. Puts a whole new spin on reading your mind. (laughs) Yes, it does. would get rid of RSI and OOS as well, wouldn't it? RSI and... Repetitive strain injury. Yes. Occupational overuse syndrome. Oh, unless you get to, you know, trouble thinking too hard. <laughs> Put your thinking cap on. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And now we're going to have a chat with Pahir about her experiences with the Shell Questacon Science Circus. So Pahir, what exactly is the Science Circus? Well, Aaron, the Science Circus, we are based in Canberra. We're people who are doing a graduate diploma in science communication, run through Australian National University. But we're also aligned with Questacon, and Questacon has an outreach program that goes all around Australia and presents science shows to high school and primary school children. So I went um, to Canberra this year and I learnt how to present, I learnt how to write, I made props, I made costumes... Um, and then I went out and I, we went to New South Wales, we went to South Australia and Western Australia, and we also went to Tasmania and toured around. We visited kindergartens, primary schools, high schools, and on the weekends we did shows for parents as well, everybody. So what's your background? How did you get involved? Well, my background is a Bachelor of Science from the University of Queensland. I did Neuroscience and Psychology. So I liked science, and then I went on and I worked in a pathology lab, and then I didn't like science very much anymore. 
because I think what I'm good at is talking and making up creative ideas and I needed somewhere and something to help me do that. So I found this course and it was called the Science Circus, which sounded interesting just from the outset. And we got taught to do lots of different things. We got taught how to talk on radio, how to write for science magazines, how to be on television. We got told how to deal with the media, how to present science shows, how to entertain children. So it's such a diverse course and has given me so many skills. And what sort of shows or experiments would you put on? Well, my particular shows, I had the music show, which included a musical carrot. So I drilled a hole through the carrot with, with the drill on stage in front of the kids and I put little drill holes in it and then I put a whistle top in it and they didn't think I could do it, but then I played um, a tune on, the, on my carrot. Or I also made my own thongophone and carried that all around Australia, my thongophone on the plane and everything. Uh, I also did the collision show, so we're talking about uh, Newton's laws, but my favourite thing that I did for that show was I made a bubble suit. So I got bubble wrap and made an entire suit out of bubble wrap and got kids up and threw water bombs at me to show the forces used in a collision. Right, right. What tune did you play on your carrot? Um, it, it varied on the day. There was an occasional old MacDonald had a farm. And the, can you tell me a bit more, the thongophone, is that what you said? Thongophone. So I got a bunch of old pipes and literally got a thong and I made uh, smaller pipes inside a bigger pipe so you could change the length and therefore how high or low the sound was and hit it with a thong. And then I also uh, put a balloon on the end, blew the balloon up and made a balloon tuba. So all out of these bunch of old pipes I could make two or three different instruments and that was another thing that we tried to portray to children as we travelled around that science uh, isn't necessarily expensive. You can pretty much use whatever you have around the house carrots and thongs to make all sorts of different things. And um, tell me about Beaker. Beaker. Beaker is our truck. Now we travel all around Australia with a 16-wheeler truck with a big shell Questacon Science Circus on the side. And inside our truck we've filled it with Questacon exhibits. And every town that we go to we set up a little exhibition on the weekend for all the parents who don't get to come to the shows during the week. And the children bring their parents, and the parents usually have just as much fun as the, ch as the children. We have a speedball, so you can throw a ball at a speed camera and see how fast you throw. We've got a racetrack where you can race your parents and see if you beat them. And lots of more shows, and so some of the demonstrations we'd do at those shows. We had flaming fireballs, so cornflower fireballs. We also had a uh, bed of nails, so we'd get... Uh, the presenter to sit on a bed of nails, lie on a bed of nails. Then he'd put a cinder block on his stomach and get a random volunteer from the audience to smash the cinder block on his stomach and he was okay because his pressure was distributed amongst all the nails. What were some of the main highlights during the year, some of the you know most fulfilling moments? Well, there was a few. I particularly like the opportunity to travel to the indigenous lands of South Australia. We travelled as a two-person group and there wasn't even mobile phone coverage. It was a long dirt roads, um, so you usually travel five or six hours in the four-wheel drive to get there and you'd see about 12 kids and uh, they were really appreciative that we'd made the effort to come out and we took lots of activities that they could get involved with and uh, little things like how they'd take them home and show their families 
what we'd made and you'd see them um, later on in the township all playing with the toys that they'd made, the science toys of course, and that's, that's special. And what now for you? Well, luckily the Shellquesticon Science Circus has opened many doors. Uh, we can get jobs in all sorts of areas. Science communication uh, is a booming industry. We can get jobs in, in print and we can get jobs on television or in radio. We can become science presenters with Questacon and keep entertaining and encouraging the curiosity of science in children. When did you first see the Science Circus? Well, I actually was lucky enough to see the Science Circus when I was about 10 as I lived in a regional town and I remember the Science Circus coming and I went on the weekends and saw the exhibition with some of the shows and I thought that that was pretty cool. So it was slightly fate that I ended up in the Science Circus myself about 10 years later. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Aaron Cook and Pahir Cooper. Diffusion was produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.